Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. So we come to the end of our sermon series on the letter to the Ephesians. And if you have been following this series, you probably have by now a good grasp of the flow and the main topics of this letter. And today we're going to look at the last section. So we're going to uh, wrap things up. Now, this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different than the way I normally preach from a text, but don't worry, I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to dance, so let me just explain. The, the letters of Paul in the New Testament were normally written to address a particular issue or situation going on in a congregation, but the letter to the Ephesians is a bit different. It doesn't seem to be about a particular issue, and it was probably intended to be read um, among several congregations. It, it actually focuses on the way God is at work on any congregation. That's why a, a commentator calls it a revelation of the church we never see, uh, because it shows us the, the work of God behind the scenes, so to speak, out of which the church that we do see grows. However, the last verses of the letter actually gives a small window into the life of the church in that city. And I would like for us to look at those dynamics in the context of the whole letter as they relate to the mission of the church. The, the church at Ephesus was an imperfect church, just as any other church, but it had a great impact in the first century. God used it as an epicenter for the expansion of the gospel through the whole region. So I think it is important for us to, to ask, what was the life of the church like? So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 24. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request for all the saints. And pray in my behalf that a speech might be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, so that you also may know about my circumstances as to what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we meditate upon your word, we pray that your spirit might give us eyes to see. We want to hear the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I grew up in northern Mexico, and by the time I was born, both of my parents were already believers. So I grew up in the Christian church, and I was always a faithful participant of the church and a good learner. But as I look back to my years as a teenager or as a young adult in the church, I realized that I grew up with the idea that the gospel is the minimum set of things that a person has to believe so that when that person dies, he or she might go to heaven. And because that's how I understood the gospel, I also believe that my mission or our mission was simply to do a short, a brief presentation of the gospel with as many people as possible so that they will do a short prayer that touch on every major doctrine of the Bible in order that one day they will go to heaven as well. 
So it was common for us to go to share the good news on parks and outside hospitals with people whose names we didn't even know. Now, not everything in what I just mentioned is wrong, so please do not hear what I'm not saying. It is okay to do a short presentation of the gospel, and it is okay to share it with strangers. But there were several misunderstandings about the gospel in my upbringing that I think are pretty significant. For example, as Pastor Tim Keller, Tim Keller likes to say, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. So it is not just the way we are saved, but also the way we grow. It is not just a message to get people ready to heaven. Also, the gospel is not just about individual salvation, but also about God restoring all his creation from sin. It includes the personal call to repent and believe in Jesus to be saved, but it also has implications that are way bigger than just us as individuals. It has to do with the end goal of history. And consequently, because it has to do not just with the afterlife and because it has to do not just with individual salvation, it has implications for the life of the church in the world today. Now, the best way to understand what these implications are is by going back to the scriptures and doing a quick survey of what the Bible calls the good news of the kingdom. So that's what we're going to do first. Secondly, once we have talked about what that means, we will then look at the last verses of Ephesians and talk about the life of the church that makes that kingdom visible for others. And finally, we will talk about the realignment that needs to happen if our lives um, are going to make that kingdom visible or tangible for others. So, what are the good news of the kingdom? How is the kingdom made visible through the life of the church? And third, how do we need to realign our lives? So let's begin with the first one, the good news of the kingdom. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we read that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God, saying that time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And in just a few words, Mark tells us a lot. First, we learn that something changed with the coming of Jesus. Before his coming, that time had not yet come. But with his coming, the time has come. Something changed. Secondly, we also learn that the good news that he preached are about the kingdom of God. And thirdly, we learn that the appropriate way to respond to the good news is by repenting and believing the good news. Now, to say that Jesus' kingdom has come near is to say that it is a present reality. However, we must not forget that Jesus also taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is something that is already here, but at the same time, it's something yet to come. My kids were doing the other day an experiment where you take some paint and release a few drops of, of uh, ink into a container with milk, and the ink slowly begins to expand until it changes the color of, of all the milk. The drops of ink have an expansive and transforming effect. Well, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So the yeast or the leaven is put in the flour, but at first it is hidden. However, slowly it transforms the composition of all the flour. That's how the kingdom of God is a present reality already at work, transforming lives 
and partially the composition of this world. Many times in an imperceptible way, but one day it will be fully revealed for all to see. I was having lunch the other day with a man that went to jail as a youth offender for some serious crimes. But while in prison, Jesus found him. And years later, he came out of prison as a new person. But also with a passion to help those who are coming out of prison to transition back into society and to have their lives be transformed by Jesus as well. And he talked about it as something small. And yet, if we think about it, he is impacting generations. That's how the kingdom works. Now, this idea of the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached actually comes from the Old Testament. In the letter to the Romans, chapter 10, the apostle Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first we hear the personal responsibility to call upon the name of Jesus, to trust Jesus to be saved. And then Paul continues, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So for people to believe and be saved, they have to hear the good news. But what are the good news? Well, Paul is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 52-7, where we read, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the good news. Your God reigns. Now, perhaps you might be thinking, well, aren't the good news the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day so that our sins will be forgiven? Well, that's exactly right. And everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. But the Apostle Paul is reminding us here that what Jesus accomplished is not just our salvation as individuals, but the restoration of his whole creation. So if you trust Jesus, yes, Sin and condemnation no longer have the final word in your life. But also cancer or depression no longer have the final word in this world. Injustice, accidents, betrayals, failure no longer have the final word in this world either. Because our God reigns and one day he will make everything right. And how do we know that? Well, because Jesus came to announce and establish the reign of God. There is a story in the Gospel of Matthew where John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect, should we wait for someone else? And instead of just giving a simple yes as an answer, basically Jesus shows them the signs of the kingdom. He tells them, he, he tells them, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The signs 
of his kingdom. As Michael Goheen, in a great book called The Church and his, Its Vocation, explains, Jesus shows us what it is like, what is coming on the final day. We see in Jesus a preview of the coming attraction. We receive windows to peer into a future world yet to come. But he does more than simply reveal it to us. He also accomplished and established the reign of God in the midst of history. The gospel announces an accomplished redemption. It is now present in the world. And with its advent, we are sure that one day it will come fully. So these are the good news of the kingdom of God that we must proclaim and demonstrate. Now perhaps you might be wondering how do we connect this good news of the kingdom with the life of the church in Ephesus, particularly as we read in the last few verses of the letter. Well, I'm so glad you, that you asked. So let's move to our second point. How is the kingdom made visible through the life of the church? It is very tempting in a city like Houston, where there are so many churches, to get confused about the end goal or purpose that should always, we should always be pursuing. And what I mean by that is that it is very easy to think that our goal should be to promote our church so that more people get to come. And please do not hear what I'm not saying. There is nothing wrong with more people coming to be part of this community. But our job is not to point people to us. Our job is to point people to God's kingdom. Now, if more people or some people come to be part of this community because of that, that's okay. Praise God. But that's not the end goal. And that's not how we should measure success. Missiologist Michael Frost once said that, um, or used the image of movie trailers to explain what our goal should be. And he explained that when you go to a movie theater, uh, before the film begins, uh, a series of trailers or preview of the upcoming releases are played. And those trailers are short films that they normally include the best scenes of the movie soon to be released. The goal is that people will see them and think, I want to come back. I want to come back to watch that movie. Now, this is a great metaphor for the church. If we do our job well, people should actually think, I want to see the world they come from. Now, I'm not talking about having the best events. I'm talking about being a forte and an instrument in bringing some, some of the justice, love, peace, and reconciliation of God's kingdom. And a fortress of a community reconciled to God that is seeking to surrender their whole lives to Jesus. Now hear me well, please. All this is done imperfectly and incomplete. But it's still being a real fortress. But how can we do that? In other words, how can we make the kingdom visible through the life of the church? Well, if we look at the last verses of the letter to the Ephesians, we get a window to see how. But it is not a complicated plan or strategy or a formula. It is nothing fancy. What we get is three simple, basic, interwoven dynamics of the life of the church. And you can actually trace each of them through the whole letter. Paul talks about communion with God or worship. He talks as well about the church or our communion with one another. And he talks about our mission. 
Very simple. So let's consider briefly each of them. First, communion with God or worship. Now, by worship, I don't mean just Sunday worship service. But please, do not hear what I'm not saying. I think that should have been the title of my sermon. Do not hear what I'm not saying. <clears throat> Instead of the, the tangible kingdom, which I actually borrowed from my great book by Hugh Halter. But anyway, I'm not saying that Sunday worship is not important or it's not central in the life of our community. But I'm using worship here first in a broader sense. As it is used by Paul in Romans chapter 12, where he calls us to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice in worship to God. Now, that call comes in response to the mercies of God that he has shown us in Christ. And that's exactly what the letter of the Ephesians is focused on. First, on explaining God's gracious gifts which have been bestowed on believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, calling us to respond to Christ's love. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. So he's talking about God's gracious gift in Christ. And then passages such as chapter 4, Paul is talking about our response. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Or chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. And even at the very end of the letter, he says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So if we are to be signs of that kingdom, a life of worship should characterize us. That includes Sunday worship, Prayer, as Paul mentions here, a deeper grasp of Christ's love, putting on Christ, loving him. But again, we're talking here about fellowship with God and offering our lives to him. The second element is community. For the kingdom of God to be seen by others, they have to see and experience the community created by the Spirit. Now, our society is divided by all kinds of things. Politics, socioeconomics, race, masks, no masks. But the church is a diverse community united by the supernatural work of the Spirit through the blood of Christ. We might think that that is difficult. But it might be helpful to remember the context of the church in the first century where Jews and Gentiles, they couldn't stand each other. And yet, Paul explains that Christ came to preach peace to both groups and to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, they are both now one body, one building, one family under Christ. And Paul ends his letter showing how that reality looks like in the life of the church. They should pray at all times for all the saints. Paul asks that they will pray for him. And then he sends Tychicus to comfort them and to tell them about what's going on with Paul. I find it interesting how Paul mentions that Tychicus will tell them or will make everything known to them. So I don't think Paul has in mind a business report but an extensive, warm conversation. So if we're going to effectively point others to God's kingdom, 
people need to experience the community of the church. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we need to be able to love one another, to appreciate each other as a gift to our lives. We need to be willing to be known by others so that they might pray for us. One commentator says that every time we ask someone to pray for us, the church becomes stronger and more mature. We need to comfort each other's heart. We need to be tychicus in the lives of others, and we need others to be tychicus in our own lives. We need to make life together, not just attend events together. It's very different. And lastly, the third element is mission. And this as well is all over the place in, in the letter. And we also know it, how central it was, by the fact that a church planting movement came out of Ephesus in the first century. We probably could mention every section of the letter, but I want to focus on chapter 4, where Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he talks about unity of the church. So again, unity, unity. Unity is very important because it has a missionary purpose. It illustrates the end, a, a unity of humanity that surpasses all unusual or all usual human divisions. And then chapter 6 says the whole Christian life in the context of spiritual warfare. And even at the end of the letter, Paul asked them to pray for him so that speech might be given to him in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, that in proclaiming it, I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. So for the church to make God's kingdom visible, for others to experience it and be invited into it, we need to be a worshiping community, make life together, and live for God's mission. Now this leads us to our last point, the realignments that need to happen in our lives. So very briefly, I'm going to mention three realignments that I believe are needed. The first realignment that needs to happen is the overlapping of our lives as followers of Jesus and the world out there. The kingdom of God needs to be made tangible in the midst of the kingdoms of this world for people to experience it. If there is no overlapping, how will others experience it and get to know the king? If in our social gatherings or whenever we open the scriptures, only Christians are present, then how are we being good news to the world? We need to rethink our gatherings to be more inclusive. We need to do more parties or celebrations out there or even prayer meetings out there. And as we do that, be thinking, if the kingdom of God has come and is overlapping here, how can I point others to it? So we need more overlapping of the kingdom of God or so that the kingdom of God will shine forth in the darkness. The second realignment is the overlapping of the three dynamics that we mentioned before, worship, community, and mission. 
that three of them actually have to go to be together for each of them to happen and for the kingdom to be made tangible. If we try to bring some of the justice of the kingdom, but our communion with God is not our motivation or it's never expressed, people might join us for kingdom work, but they will never get to know the king. Or if we seek to follow Jesus alone, how will we become a more mature body if we don't depend and learn from each other? I am convinced that one of the greatest challenges for the evangelical church in America is the need to align worship, community, and mission. We are so compartmentalized. We think on worship as an individual experience, what I feel, what I receive, what I learn. We think on community just as fellowship apart from mission. We think on mission as something where I volunteer, you know, and just as service projects. But for the kingdom of God to be made tangible, we need the alignment of the three. People need to see a radically diverse community that loves Jesus with all their heart, that makes life together, and that is willing to include them because they love them as well. And I believe we, need, we all need to do a self-assessment here. But the question is not, oh, so how is Christ the King going to do that? How is Christ the King going to solve that? I think the question is more personal. How do I need, or, or our family needs to realign our life? And the last realignment is actually what holds everything together. And that's the realignment around the person of Jesus. The only way we can experience communion with the triune God is through Christ, in whom we were made alive. The only way to be willing to surrender our lives is if we know how deep and wide and long and high is his love for us. The only way to overcome the barriers that divide us and to defeat our pride and to commit to one another is if we are united by Christ. The only way to live sacrificially is if we know that in him we have been adopted. And in him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If Jesus is not central to our worship, community, and mission, then everything falls apart. Michael Goheen, again, tells the story of how Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India for several decades in the last century, will sometimes travel some distance by foot in India with some of his co-workers. And to avoid the heat, they will often get up early while it was still dark to begin the journey, many times going east. But as they travel east, they might meet other people going west. Now, the ones going in the opposite direction or going west might see a faint light on their faces, the faces of those going east. And if they were to ask, where does that light come from? The answer will be, turn around and look to the east. The sun was just coming up over the horizon and a new day was dawning. So one group of people reflected the light of the new day and invited others to turn and see so Leslie Newbigin says that, or said that, the church is that company 
which going the opposite way to the majority is given already the first glow of the light of a new day. It's the light that is the witness. Our life as a community is to announce and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom so that others will turn around and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as your people in this city, help us, help us to be more like our king, to long for his return, and to be a faithful foretaste of your kingdom, so that others will turn around and look to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.